Yes, so the reading is from 2 Kings 2, verses 1 to 25, and it is on page 514 of your church Bibles. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Look, they said, we, your servants, have fifty able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has picked him up and sent him down on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha replied, do not send them. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse. So he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days but did not find him. When they returned to Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? The people of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. 
He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys, and he went to Mount Carmel, and from there returned to Samaria. Thanks, James, and good morning again. Um, For obvious reasons, I was thinking of calling this sermon, Don't Mess With Bald Men. Um, uh, I know this passage is a dark favourite passage uh, for gentlemen who are follically challenged. Um, And look, I'm not sure if it's obvious from where you're sitting, but I think I might be starting to thin out a bit on top, actually. So I do have a great love of this passage myself in in a strange way. As a confession, I I have read that particular, the ending of that passage out uh, more than once when I was leading at youth uh, to get some particularly cheeky young men back in line. Uh, But it is a confronting scene, isn't it? Um, It is confronting. Uh, It's quite alarming in some ways uh, to leave that hanging in the air as we get up and get into this passage. Um, And like much of the Bible, that last little bit of uh, chapter 2 can just make us rush to all sorts of conclusions and just might raise all kinds of uncomfortable questions for us. Um, So what we'll do today is, well, just thinking about coming into a movie um, or a a TV series, if you look at just one scene, uh, it's pretty hard to make sense of it all, isn't it? Uh, If you walk in halfway through a movie, trying to work out what's going on. Today, what I'm going to try and do is take a step back. Uh, I think it's going to be helpful if we uh, step back from the little details and have a look at the really big picture, uh, the much wider context before we zoom back in. Uh, Because last year, we spent a couple months in the book of One Kings uh, as a whole church, and today we're starting a series in Two Kings. Uh, We're going to be doing this for about six weeks. Before really diving into the series, uh, the first question you might rightly have, though, is, why Two Kings? Why are we looking at this part of the Bible? Uh, at one level, it's a very simple answer. The reason we're looking at two kings is because it comes after one kings. We just turn the page and keep going. Uh, but more than that, um, I should let you know there is some really difficult and really confronting things in uh, the material we'll cover in this series. Um, and last week, I spoke uh, here about our expectation of coming to church. Uh, that is, we want to come not being spectators, but being participants. Uh, much like uh, seeing church as a spiritual gym, if you remember from last week, uh, we come here to have a spiritual workout. Uh, And so with that in mind, uh, it's so often that when we spend time in really difficult parts of God's Word, um, that when we wrestle with what's confronting, rather than just uh, hope uh, we understand it one day and come back to it, when we look at what's confusing and confronting, that's how we grow uh, so often. Uh, We grow in our understanding of who God is and understanding more and more about His grace to us in Jesus. And so two kings, like many parts of the Bible, will teach us um, so many good things and it will stretch us. And that's a really, really good thing. Um, As we go through this series, can I encourage you all to perhaps set yourself a challenge, a stretch goal, uh, to read all of Two Kings in the coming months for yourself. Um, As we look through the series, we're really only touching on a few key moments uh, in the book. We just don't have time to look at the whole thing as a church uh, on Sundays. And so like with any exercise, you will only benefit as much as you put into it. Uh, And I reckon it'll be really great. I encourage you to have a go at reading Two Kings um, in the next couple months. Now, if you weren't around for last year in our series in 1 Kings, or if you're brand new today, big welcome to you, um, or if you just have a memory like mine and you vaguely remember doing 1 Kings but have no idea what it was about, uh, we do have all our sermons up online, so you can go back and catch up on that if you want to uh, get up to speed from 1 Kings. Uh, but today, I want to get us all on the same page, and I just want to take a big step back and paint a really big picture of the story so far. See, God has a really big plan, uh, has had a really big plan from the beginning to reverse the curse of sin. Uh, to bless the whole world and to have people return to relationship with him. Uh, That's kind of the storyline of the Bible. 
God's plan centered on one family, the family of Abraham, and that family grew into the nation of Israel. And so of all the nations of the earth God could have chosen, he chose this tiny, beaten down, nobody nation to be his own, his own special possession. And the way the, the Bible describes the relationship between God and Israel is with a covenant. God entered himself into a covenant, a, a relationship that kind of is bound with like a contract, I suppose, with terms and conditions. Uh, God would do his part. Uh, he would uphand, uphold his end of the, um, the covenant by blessing Israel, by providing for them, nurturing them, protecting them, satisfying their every need. And for Israel, they had to do their part as well to stay faithful to the covenant. They had to keep God's law, to not go and worship other gods. They needed to keep listening and obeying God and listening to him as their king. Uh, That covenant was signed kind of with blood under Moses' leadership. And God led Israel into this promised land to be theirs forever as long as they kept up their end of the covenant. That was the deal. But in a nutshell, the history of Israel from when they entered the promised land onwards is they didn't. They did not keep the covenant well at all. A really big moment in Israel's history comes back in 1 Samuel. It's sort of the books before 1 and 2 Kings. 1 Samuel, a few generations really, before our story picks up today. Um, Israel says to God, like, we want a king. Not you. We want a king like the nations around us. Uh, we want to be ruled by a king. So they're rejecting God at one level as they ask for that. And God, uh, in an act of judgment mixed with kindness, he gives them what they want. God gave them a king. He gave them a king along with a warning that having a king is going to suck most of the time because no human king will be anywhere near as good as having God as their king. Um, And that's basically what one and two kings goes on to prove. No king lives up to the expectations or the hopes they might have had. Still, God chose a good king for Israel. He chose uh, King David to be the model king. David was far from perfect. If you know anything about his life, you know he was far from perfect. And actually, that's kind of the point with David. Uh, Because David's greatest strength as a king is that he repents when he does wrong and he seeks to lead his people in faithful service to God. That's what he uh, he was on about. And so God went on and made a promise with David, almost like another covenant really, a promise with David that one of David's descendants would always sit on the throne. Now, one kings, it started with the death of David, Israel's greatest king, this fantastic king. And if you look back, you'll see that in the first 10 chapters or so, one king's documents of the first 10 chapters, David's fantastic son Solomon, he started so, so well. Things were fantastic in Israel under King Solomon. But then... From chapter 11, the story has been taking on a diabolical, tragic twist because Solomon went off the rails in chapter 11 and since then, every chapter kind of just gets sadder and more tragic and despairing. Uh, After Solomon's death, the nation of Israel splits into two uh, and it's never to be reunited again. A tragic moment back in 1 Kings. In fact, I've got a map for you here, and this is going to be super helpful for you. I'm not sure how we well can see that, but um, the super helpful thing, as you read two kings, you need to bear in mind is there are two kingdoms it's been spoken about. Um, the kingdom of Israel is up in the north, uh, and the kingdom of Judah is down in the south. Two different nations with two different lines of kings. Now, I say that because as you read two kings, it bounces back and forwards, and there's kings, and there's which country you're in, north, south. Um, The key thing in all of this, perhaps, is that in the south, in Judah, we have on the throne kings from the line of David. That's critical. In the south, kings from the line of David. In the north, there are all kinds of dynasties come and go, and none of them in the north are any good whatsoever. All are rubbish. Some in the south are okay sometimes. 
Now, the worst one so far, the worst king in the north so far in 1 Kings was a king called Ahab, uh, along with his wife called Jezebel. Uh, they were just terrible. Uh, they introduced uh, all kinds of idol worship. They were worshipping the, prophet Baal, uh, the um, idol Baal. And they were pretty relentless in putting to death God's prophets and priests. Then towards the end of 1 Kings last year, a fascinating thing started happening. Um, God in the past had sent prophets to minister to the kings of the nations primarily. But with Ahab being such a bad king who wasn't listening, God also started sending the prophets to the people. He started going around the kings to speak directly to the people. It's quite a big movement uh, in, in history, actually. God doesn't go through the king. He goes directly to the people with his word. In fact, it's while Ahab, one of uh, the worst kings on the throne of Israel in the north, it's while Ahab, the worst king, is there that God sends the best prophet. He sends along Elijah, an absolute superstar of the Old Testament. Um, Elijah has been showing um, Israel that God and God alone must be worshipped. Uh, some of you may remember that uh, very famous incident of, of uh, Elijah calling down fire from heaven in a battle, a contest with the prophets of Baal. And he stood up time and again against the evil king and his wife. Um, and he is that great prophet of God who speaks truth. He speaks the, speaks the word of God to a nation who doesn't want to hear it. Today, though, we find out that Elijah is about to sign off and disappear. Uh, it's kind of like he's literally riding off into the sunset. Now, thanks for bearing me through a big sketch of the Bible. That's about 500 pages of the Bible in three minutes. So uh, it's a fair bit of detail to take in there. I appreciate it's not straightforward. Um, but hopefully uh, doing that gives you a bit of a sense of what's happening in the background as we get to two kings. And now we slow down and look again at chapter 2. Um, a big part of the reason I wanted to give that recap is uh, because it highlights just how important Elijah is. He's not just a random guy. Uh, he is that superstar prophet. In fact, since Moses, the greatest of prophets, there hasn't been anyone like Elijah. He has almost single-handedly kept the light shining in Israel, speaking God's word. And so as you get to the start of chapter 2, I reckon you can imagine pretty easily how the believing, faithful Israelites would have felt knowing this mighty prophet who can call down fire from heaven, who can stand against evil kings, that he is about to exit the scene. I think I'd be really nervous. I think I'd be anxious not knowing what's going to happen next. The nation has really gone to the dogs, spiritually speaking. Ahab's son is now ruling. He's also, no surprise, absolutely rubbish. And now without Elijah protecting God's people, uh, not standing there in the way of the king, you might be wondering, well, I might not last long, actually. This is a dangerous place to worship God. And without Elijah, how will we keep hearing God's word? So as you read in verse 1 there, that God is about to take up uh, Elijah to heaven, I think the major mood we should be picking up on here is, oh no, uh, this is a mild panic kind of moment in the nation of Israel up the north. I've been trying to think uh, what this would feel like for us in our kind of world. Um, I, I first thought maybe it's a bit like losing the stability and wisdom of Queen Elizabeth, but only if the monarchy really made any difference in our day-to-day -day lives. Not a great parallel. Um, the exit of Elijah, historically speaking, is far bigger, far more impressive in some ways than the passing of Queen Elizabeth, a bigger historical moment by far. Probably a better situation, a better parallel, I suppose, that we uh, might find very concerning here in Australia um, in Australia, there's a generation of great gospel uh, church leaders. They're about to retire in the next five or ten years. Are some fantastic, faithful, brave men and women who've been serving hard for a generation. 
as that faithful generation of wise pastors and leaders, courageous people, as they start retiring around our nation, who's waiting in the wings to take over, to lead churches and to pastor into the future? Uh, in our own network of churches, uh, the Trinity Network, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, uh, the thing that holds the 14 churches together uh, and keeps driving us forward with great encouragement and uh, focus on God's grace uh, is the wise and godly leadership of Paul Harrington. Uh, he's overseen this network of churches since it was one church uh, many years ago, and uh, Paul was an incredibly gifted and grace-driven leader. Uh, I'm very thankful for Paul. Uh, my guess is Paul will never hear me uh, give this sermon. Uh, I don't think he's going to be listening to online to this one. But if he did, I doubt he'd mind me saying that Paul's not a spring chicken anymore. Um, at some point in the coming years, uh, he will be riding off into the sunset, maybe in a chariot of fire like Elijah. We'll see. Does this next generation have what it takes, not just here in our network, um, but more widely around our country? Will things fall apart even more in the church in Australia uh, in a culture that's harder than it uh, used to be, perhaps. I reckon that's the mood. Uh, that's the vibe of verse 1 here as Elijah is about to depart. Those sorts of things rise to the surface. Thankfully, uh, the rest of the chapter has some really great encouragement for us. Uh, from verses 2 to 10, it's almost a comical kind of sequence. I, heard, I thought I heard someone giggle uh, during this section, which I think is right. It's kind of funny. Uh, as Elijah and his apprentice are wandering around all over the place, and three times Elijah says, look, stay here, I'm going to keep going. Uh, and at three times, Elisha says, no, I'm coming with you. Uh, there's no way I'm, I'm staying behind. Alongside of that, there are companies of prophets, prophets uh, coming out at each spot they travel to saying, did you know that God is going to take Elijah away from you today? And Elisha says, uh, yeah, can you just shut up about it? Uh, he's, he's not really that keen to talk about it. It's not his favourite topic. It's kind of fair enough as well when you think about it. Elisha has been an apprentice of Elijah for, for years now. Um, Elisha actually left everything in his old life behind to follow along this great prophet, to travel with him, minister with him, serve alongside him, uh, and to serve Jesus, as uh, to serve the Lord with him. Uh, on Elijah's farewell tour, uh, these verses, I think by slowing the story right down, there's that sort of that drama, that repetition, I think that slows it right down to build that sense of nervousness and tension that people are feeling. The prophets are coming out. Do you know he's going? Yes, shut up. The, they're all worked up. You can feel the tension, and I think that's right. Um, Elijah, by telling Elisha to stay behind, I think it's hard to know for sure what's going on there, but it seems to me that it's the final part of Elisha's training, the final part of his apprenticeship. It's kind of the question, are you ready to go wherever you need to, uh, to do whatever it takes? Are you going to see this through to the end, to be the prophet of God? And yes, Elisha is ready. He will go. Um, there's something else happening in these verses in the background, I suppose, or in the details more, uh, in verses 2 to 10. Uh, if you notice the places they're travelling to, they might not uh, ring any bells for you, and that's fine, but they're travelling to places called uh, Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, the Jordan River. Um, if you sort of skim back through the 500 pages I skipped over very quickly before, you'll see that these are some of the most important places in Israel's history. Um, after Moses, the great, great prophet, died, uh, his apprentice, Joshua, uh, he led Israel into the Promised Land. First, they had to cross over the Jordan River. Huge moment in Israel's history. Um, then they set up their base camp at Gilgal, another massive moment. They've set up camp in the Promised Land. And then they went on to conquer, famously, the first major city, Jericho. These are the places mentioned here. Uh, these locations are recalling that moment of seismic transition uh, as the baton was passed from Moses to Joshua. 
And I think the, the idea is everything was okay. The baton got passed. It was okay. The nation was okay without Moses because Joshua was there. And then to drive that point home, I suppose, Elijah in verse 8, um, he parts the water to pass through, uh, just like Moses in the Red Sea, sort of showing again, I think, that history is replaying, is repeating itself. The point being, just like Moses passed the baton to Joshua, Elijah is about to pass the baton to Elisha. Well, even further, it's driven home in verse 9. Uh, Elijah asks, tell me, what can I do for you before I disappear? Elisha says, well, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Not sure if you've ever asked for that for Christmas. There's a, a bit of an odd thing to ask for, isn't it? A double portion of your spirit. Um, it doesn't, it, it, so he's not just asking for extra superpowers or prophetic powers. That's not really what he's asking. Uh, in the background here is the, um, is the idea of inheritance for the firstborn son. And in, for Israelites, uh, the firstborn son was to inherit a double portion when their father dies. Might not sound fair, but uh, that was how the family business was carried on. The oldest son would get double the inheritance. So Elisha, by asking for a double portion, is saying, let me carry on your work, as if I am your son, carrying on the family business. That's what seems to be going on here. Verse 10, Elijah answers, you have asked a difficult thing. Um, Asking to become Israel's chief prophet, uh, speaking God's word to a nation that hates you, um, yeah, it's a difficult job. It's heartbreaking and hard work, says Elijah. That's the first thing I think he's saying about being difficult, but perhaps as well, uh, it's also, it's just not for Elijah himself to grant that role. Uh, That's God's appointment. It's a difficult thing he's asking because that's actually what God will do. Uh, He'll appoint Elisha if God sees fit. That is, Elijah has done everything in his power to get Elisha ready to go, but it's God himself who will confirm whether Elisha truly inherits that role of Israel's prophet. Do you see how, uh, in context, how crucial this kind of moment is for us? Uh, One faithful generation doing all they can to prepare the next generation to carry on the work of the Lord, and the next generation preparing to step up, uh, to carry the responsibility and to carry the gospel forward into the future, an unknown future. And so in some ways, this is, I think, the perfect passage to be uh, preaching on today when we're baptising Miles. Uh, not just because we have prophets splashing around in the Jordan River where Jesus himself was baptised, uh, but because baptism is such a wonderful picture of the, the gospel, uh, the gospel being passed from one generation to the next. And as well, as a church, we're committing uh, today to support Aaron and Susanna as they raise uh, miles in gospel truths. We're committing to be that generation passing on the gospel. It's why, as a church, we put on uh, a lot of energy, I put a lot of energy into our kids' programs and our youth, our youth programs. We don't just run things to be fun or to babysit the kids uh, while we have church. Um, that would kind of be easy enough to do. Uh, we, we can make it far harder for ourselves as a church because uh, we're committed to teaching our kids, our youth, uh, actually right down from creche upwards, we're teaching our kids in age-appropriate ways God's word. It's a great thing we should be doing and keep investing in helping our kids grow and grow up in the gospel so they can firmly grasp it themselves and then one day pass it on to the next generation again. Uh, This idea of uh, passing the gospel on is actually one of the main reasons we're sitting here shivering away in Tonsley, uh, the idea of generations. Uh, Years ago, I was was convinced that if we're going to plant a church anywhere, uh, it should be as close as possible to Flinders Uni. Uh, There are other reasons that make Tonsley, I think, a really great location, but... um, one really big idea that I had in my mind a long time ago is we have a hope, a great vision, I think, for um, in the coming years, uh, seeing great work happen in the lives of young adults in our area. Like We want to partner with the work that Flinders ES are doing with Mike uh, just up the road. 
Um, but more generally, as a church, we want to be running ministries for young adults, not just uni students, but for young adults. Um, we want our young adults to be taking deep into God's words, uh, God's word, and to have opportunities to grow as, as God's leaders. Um, it's such a formational time of life, such a st- strategic ministry for us as a church to invest in. Equipping and encouraging the next generation to step up and to carry the gospel forward. Uh, behind the scenes, just so you're aware, our leadership team are thinking through uh, some of the ways, some of the steps we can take uh, to be yeah, in- investing in that very strategic ministry. Uh, first, the young, man, young adults we already have with us, uh, we want to keep investing in. We're so thankful for, the, uh, for those young adults we have with us. Uh, but even more so, we want to think, how can we reach those young adults we haven't met yet? Now, if you're worried that I'm reading a bit too much into two kings here, um, maybe, uh, maybe I am. Uh, however, in my defence, uh, this is a pattern we see all through Scripture. Um, after all, what was Jesus doing with his disciples those years together? Among other things, he was preparing them uh, for the time he would leave them ascending to heaven so that they could carry on his work. It's why the Apostle Paul gathered uh, young men like Timothy and Titus as his apprentices and trained them and trained them to train others. I think this will be on the screen uh, from 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. There's a memory verse for you, 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. Paul says to Timothy, his protege, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. It's passing the gospel on, passing it on. The gospel must be passed on. And each generation, uh, each uh, leader in kingdom work has a responsibility to invest in others who can replace us. So uh, do be praying for the parents in our church. Uh, Pray for the leaders and teachers in our kids and youth programs. Uh, It's a precious and really crucial work. And we all have a responsibility to make sure that work is happening and working hard at it. Uh, Put it in a more sobering kind of way, I suppose. Uh, Some of you will know of Don Carson, who's a brilliant Christian thinker and author. Um, He has this to say about what happens when generations aren't doing this. Uh, He's talking about the gospel here. He says, one generation believes something, next generation assumes it, the third will forget and deny it. It's imperative. We pass the gospel forward so that doesn't happen. Well, from verse 11, the big moment finally arrives, and we're not told why this happens, by the way, it just happens. Uh, Elijah is picked up by a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and he's taken off to heaven. Uh, Extraordinary, right? Verse 12, Elisha cries out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Now, it's a bit of a strange thing about the chariots and horsemen. It doesn't seem Elisha is just saying out loud what he can see. Um, It seems that he's calling Elijah the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Like, what? It sounds odd, but the idea is that Elijah is, he was, Israel's most powerful weapon. Uh, horses and chariots were like tanks, you know, the weapons on the battlefield you really wanted. Um, and so Elijah is crying out, lamenting, they have just lost Israel's super, super weapon. They're vulnerable now, the forces around them could crush them. So no matter how well prepared Elisha was, you can understand great grief, absolutely, losing his friends. A great man has passed, but you can definitely feel his sense of vulnerability here. Uh, you just have to take that deep breath, feeling that responsibility passing to his shoulders and getting on with it. And for verse 15, it seems the company of prophets, they're also not quite ready uh, for the new era they find themselves in. They just want to find Elijah. Let's go looking for him. Maybe he's still here somewhere. Uh, it's kind of, a, again, a funny conversation. Elisha says, look, don't worry about it. Don't bother. But they can't let go. And so he says, look, fine, go have a look. And then they come back and he's like, told you so. Uh, it's a, kind of a, a funny moment. 
But you realize here, like with these company of prophets, like change is hard. Uh, it's a struggle for all of us. Um, and as we read about this kind of tragic inability to move on and to adopt to the new environment, to the new leader there, uh, I reckon for us, this is a subtle warning that we don't attach ourselves too much to a particular leader or rely on one person too much for our spiritual health. Uh, during the week, I heard uh, about one pastor who decided he just had to move states uh, to stop members from his old church keep moving around every time he moved churches. He had to move. It was unhealthy. People kept following him, depending on him uh, for their spiritual health. Uh, even me here as your pastor, it's a great privilege, of course. But if I was to get hit by a bus tomorrow, like maybe you'd be sad for a while, I'm, I'm sure, maybe. Uh, but you know this church will be fine, don't you? Uh, you know it'll be fine. God's word will still be preached here at Tonsley, whether it's me or someone else. Because uh, it doesn't really matter at one level who's doing the preaching. What matters is the word of God is preached. And that will happen. As this chapter makes really, really clear, what matters most is not the servant or the spokesperson. Uh, that's not powerful. Uh, what's powerful is God's word. It's with God's word that God breaks nations and builds them. It's with God's word that he changes lives. He saves people for eternity. Elisha, he picks up Elijah's cloak, and just like Elijah did, he smacks the Jordan River and divides it. And actually, I don't think the cloak is the focus here. Um, the point is the role of God's prophet, the one who will speak God's words. God is confirming here, Elisha is the man for the job. He has inherited that double portion as it is. God, with his word, will bless and curse through Elisha. And actually, for the next eight chapters or so, uh, that's what happens. Time and time again, you see Elisha uh, bringing God's word to bear and blessing Israel through the many miraculous things that Elisha does. See, as much as we have a responsibility to invest in the next generation and confidence we have for the future, um, any confidence we have for the future is not in how good a job we do at passing the gospel on. Our confidence doesn't lie there. Our confidence doesn't lie in how gifted young leaders might be. Our confidence and our hope is always in the powerful word of God. That's what lasts uh, from one generation to the next. And that is what has incredible power. We put our trust in God's word in a world that changes and we don't keep trusting individuals. It's so important. The two short stories we have from verse 19, I think, again, continues to confirm that God's people are going to be fine. It's going to be okay. Uh, they're going to be fine even without their superstar, super, super weapon Elijah because God's word is going to endure. It's going to bring both blessing and where need be, it's going to bring judgment. From verse 19, we hear about the people of Jericho. They approach Elisha and they're asking for help. Now, this is a really good sign, by the way. Uh, going to ask Elisha for help shows that they're recognizing he's the person God sent to help. This is a good sign. They're looking for help from the right places. Um, there's some background here that's also really important in this story. When Joshua and the Israelites destroyed Jericho, walking around, the walls came down. Um, when that happened, Joshua cursed Jericho. Uh, he cursed Jericho, invoking God in that curse, and he said any attempt to rebuild the city will be a disaster. And then in 1 Kings 16, um, someone does rebuild Jericho, and yeah, there's some disasters that happen. But that happens under the blessing with evil King Ahab in the background here. So of all the places in the world you wouldn't expect God to bless... Jericho is on top of that list, actually. It's cursed by God himself. But the people seek help from God's prophet. Because God loves to bless his people, he loves to give life, he does as they ask, and he removes the curse. Um, here in this story, I don't think it's so much the salt that fixes the water. Uh, it's, it's God's word in verse 21, carried by Elisha. This is what the Lord says, I have healed the water. 
Never again will, I, will it cause death or make the land unproductive. Uh, God's enduring word brings blessing and it brings life and can remove the curse of death. Uh, maybe for some of you here today, uh, you can't imagine God turning your life around. Uh, maybe the weight of uh, guilt or shame is heavy and the curse of sin you can't imagine God taking away. But yes, yes, uh, God promises you forgiveness. He promises freedom. He promises life because of Jesus. And his word of promise can always be trusted. He loves to bring life. He loves to bring light when there is death and darkness. What then do we make, though, of these final few verses with the bears? Uh, Is Elisha just having a bad day? He's missed his morning coffee and just a bit grumpy. Well, through two kings, we're going to see time and time again that to ignore God's word uh, and to ignore his word of warning especially, it's ultimately fatal every time uh, to the individual and also, as it goes on, to the nation. But you might think, well, it didn't seem like these, uh, these youth, these, killed, these children, didn't seem to have much of a warning. But yet, uh, I want to say Israel, every Israelite should have known God's enduring warning. It's laid out clearly in the covenant. Um, you have this warning from Leviticus 26, I think this will be on the screen. Uh, this is God saying, If you remain hostile towards me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children, destroy your, chatter, your cattle and make you so few in number that your rows will be deserted. As you read about uh, Elisha and the bears, you realise these are not just random bears, uh, these are covenant bears. Um, what's more, Bethel, where this happens, the city where it's based at, uh, at this point is in the north. It's one of the most hostile places to God. Um, they were worshipping golden calves there. Uh, it's not the sort of thing God's prophets would have been particularly fond of or stayed silent about. I think it's very fair to assume Elijah and Elisha were well-known and well-hated in Bethel. In fact, if you have the Bible open in front of you, you'll notice the boys, they're possibly youth, but uh, they're young. Uh, they come out of the town. They're seeking out Elisha. He's not just walking past them. They come and find him. And there's at least 42 of them. There's likely more than that. uh, But that is a big, hostile mob, really. That's a lot of people coming at you, making fun of your head. His boldness, though, his boldness isn't so much the point here. They're being rude, there's no doubt. But what they're saying to him is, get out of here. More literally, they're saying, get up or go up. It's perhaps a rude way of saying, why don't you go the same way Elijah went and get out of here, disappear forever. Elisha is not just a random passerby to them. They sought him out because they are hostile to him as God's prophet. They're reflecting, no doubt, the attitudes and hostilities of their parents, well ingrained in them. They're mocking Elisha, but really what they're doing actively is rejecting God's word. And so they reject God's blessing and instead stand under God's judgment. And whether those 42 who are mauled or not, whether they die or not, Uh, It's not clear, we're just told they're mauled. Uh, I'm sure though being mauled by a bear one way or another would leave at very least lifelong scars, uh, lifelong reminders that rejecting God's word is to stand under his judgment. Sadly, uh, this will be the theme in 2 Kings as God's people remain hostile to him and they remain hostile to his prophets. They don't want to listen to God's many, many patient warnings. As shocking as that story is with the bears, uh, it's actually foreshadowing a far worse judgment for Israel 
this horrible, horrible moment should have been a warning to them to change course, to repent, remember the covenant and change course before it's too late. We will cover this in more depth as we go, but it's a similar big idea for us, this side of Jesus. Uh, God is patiently, patiently waiting and uh, wanting the world to turn to him, to turn to Jesus before it's too late. He's graciously holding out the word of life and blessing and grace. So as we wrap up, uh, let me just return to a theme I've been uh, hitting on today. I think, yeah, absolutely, we need to have good kids' programs. We need to be very strategic and thoughtful about passing the gospel from one generation to the next. Uh, more importantly, uh, the thing I want to leave us with today is the question is, are our hearts right about God's word? Uh, do we have the humility and trust in God's word that we should? Uh, the humility to take seriously our God's warnings about sin and about his judgments and about the temptations of our world? Are we repenting where we need to? And do we turn to God's word first to find encouragement in his promises? Is scripture where we go to to drive us forward in hope, in our growth, in holiness, to build up our faith? What place does God's word hold in your heart? God's word is so powerful. And a world of chaos and change, be encouraged this morning to cling to God's word, uh, to work hard at understanding the tricky bits like two kings, and especially to keep giving thanks to God for his word and that through it we have life. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is powerful. We thank you that it has endured from generation to generation and taken a hold in our own lives in such a powerful way. Uh, please be with each of us. Help us to play our part in passing the gospel on to the next generation, however we can. Uh, but more than that today, we ask you to help us to trust in your word. Uh, help us to trust no matter what's happening in the world around us through great change. Please help us take seriously where we need to the warnings of your word. Please grow our hearts to grasp more and more the blessings you offer us uh, in your word of hope and truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.